I tell the truth in Messiah. I do not lie, my conscience assuring me in the Ruach HaKodesh that my sorrow is great and the anguish in my heart unending. For I would pray that I myself were cursed, banished from Messiah for the sake of my people, my own flesh and blood, who are Israelites. To them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the Torah and the temple service and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, the Messiah, who is over all, God, blessed forever. Amen. We're especially blessed because we have a special guest. Uh, for some of us, he's not a guest. Um, Alan Shore and I go quite a ways back, uh, long before we... Uh, had beards or uh, gray hair. Uh, we graduated from the same high school in uh, Queens, Jamaica High School. He was one year ahead of me, and uh, uh, Alan came to know the Lord in the people people's uh, in Boulder. Folks, God is alive and well in all kinds of places. Amen? Uh, he is now Dr. Alan Shore. Uh, he has received a uh, PhD in uh, Yiddish literature, and he is currently working with Chosen People Ministries. Um, it's a blessing to have him come and share with us from the riches that God has given him. So please come. wonderful to be here, I tell you, and so many different connections, not only the Boulder connection, but I will tell you that I, I heard of Chaim even before I met him because I heard wild tales <laughs> of a friend of mine's classmate in Mr. Pazinkoff's class, was that his name, the English teacher, a wild tale about a Jewish guy who believed in Jesus and I said, <laughs> how could that possibly be? Chaim's father, Eliezer, was the first Jewish believer that I ever met. And so it is a very, very heartfelt, um, a shenem dank, as we say in Yiddish, a heartfelt thank you uh, to be in your midst today. And yes, I had finished a, um, a doctorate since I last saw some of you in uh, modern Jewish history and culture with an emphasis in Yiddish language and literature, and Jewish-Christian relations. Eliezer was with the American Board of Missions to the Jews, which became Chosen People Ministries. And I am coming up on my 20th year in service with that mission organization. For those of you, and I can't imagine there's anybody here who hasn't heard of it, I left uh, some literature to take away if you're at all interested in learning more. And in my capacity with Chosen People Ministries, I've had the opportunity to help lead some trips to Israel, mainly composed of evangelical Christians. And I, I noticed something over the years that, that started to become a little bit troubling to me. And it's that, you know, bless their hearts, coming to Israel with stars in their eyes to visit the places that they've read about all of their lives in the scripture, that these folks showed almost no interest whatsoever 
in contemporary Israeli society. And even unconsciously, not intentionally doing it, treating Israel like a, uh, a big outdoor theme park, an outdoor Holy Land theme park on the Holy Land. And I began then to begin to think, you know, that, that with no knowledge or awareness or concern whatsoever for 2,000 years of Jewish history, I began to ask myself, well, am I in the same situation? We want to make a connection, a connection with Yeshua and first century Second Temple Judaism, and almost completely disregard the 2,000 years that have passed since then. So not only do we run around teaching about the Jewish roots of Christian faith to Christians, I began to think, gee, maybe I need a course in the Jewish roots of modern messianic identity. And I began to think and reflect very seriously about Jewish identity and its relationship to messianic identity. And my coursework over the eight and a half years that I did it was accompanied by a meditation on this very subject. So that's how I became engaged in Yiddish language and literature and the Jewish encounter with Jesus and Yeshua in scholarship, art, history, and literature. And I say Jesus and Yeshua for a specific reason in this context. For although Jewish believers in the gospel sometimes use both of these names interchangeably, for so many Jewish people, and I'm sure all of us who are Jewish know this, and those who are not Jewish but care about things messianic are in every bit as part of a membership of this uh, congregation as any Jewish person could be. For Jewish believers in the gospel, sometimes those names are used interchangeably, but for so many Jewish people, the name Jesus maintains a sense of foreignness, a distance between us and the dominant Christian culture that formed our context for almost 2,000 years until the establishment of the state of Israel. And that distance has served as a survival mechanism that has enabled Jews to maintain a distinct identity defined quite simply, very frequently, as simply not Christian. And what I wish to do this morning in the brief time that I have with you is to explore the terrain of this border and the nature of the border patrol that works from both sides, Jewish and Christian, to keep the Christian Jesus from becoming the Jewish Yeshua, if you see what I mean, and each for their own reasons. And of course, here's an odd thing. I need water? Right, okay. I'm like a camel, I tell you. <laughs> the reason the Border Patrol from both sides has to work so diligently is that because the border is so much more porous than either cares to admit. And the possibilities that have arisen as a result of the interaction between Jew and Christian that neither side at times has wanted, but nonetheless is taking place anyway, plays a greater role in the making of modern messianic Jewish identity than many of us suspect. So I want to begin with just a very brief overview of how the greater proximity of Jewish people to Christian culture began to emerge 
in the modern era beginning in the late 1700s. And this is just a very quick bullet point before I get into the main body of the message that I want to impart to you today. It's simply this, that the, Jew, the religious wars between Protestants and Catholics were just so bloody and so horrible that by the middle of the, the 17th century, both sides were exhausted and decided to find some kind of way to live together after the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, just a modus vivendi, a way of life together, because no, it became evident that neither was going to prevail over the other, and they would just go on bopping each other on the bean until there was nobody left. So they decided to tolerate each other, to learn about toleration. And one of the odd things is that the tolerance that, Jew, that Christians of different stripes had to practice toward one another began a little bit to rub off on the Jews. And as nation states began to emerge and the concept of natural rights and citizenship began to be articulated, the question became, hmm, can Jews actually become like us? Can they become citizens in these newly emerging nation states? And this greater proximity and sense of possibility between Jews and Christians in Western Europe began to change how Jews and Christians related to each other. Is all of this is sort of under the, the, the general concept of what was called modernity and enlightenment. In a nutshell, the creed of enlightenment was that humanity guided by the light of reason, would throw off the shackles of religious superstition. Science would unlock the mysteries of the universe. The scientific revolution would certainly reshape people's view of the mysteries of the universe and nature. Political revolution would reconfigure the map. And this transformative time would affect the development of Jewish culture, beginning in Western Europe, from the mid-18th century and forward. And as a result, a great sea change, a vast change in Jewish life came about as a result of the European Enlightenment in Western Europe and the drive toward the emancipation of the Jews. Because if the Enlightenment was characterized by humanism, rationalism, and other isms that defined this newly emerging landscape in a myriad of ways, these changes began to have a profound effect upon the Jewish world beginning in Germany in the late 1770s in what is termed the Haskalah, the Jewish enlightenment coming from the Hebrew word for seichel, which means reason. It's a Yiddish, now it's passed into Yiddish because if uh, somebody is uh, considered smart, they say he has seichel, he's got common sense. So the proponents of the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, who were called the Maskilim, promoted Jewish integration into the modern centralized state and full participation in Christian society. And the father of this movement is generally considered to be Moses Mendelssohn, who lived from 1729 to 1786, a leading proponent of what was called the Berlin Haskalah, the Berlin Enlightenment for Jews. And 
He was a very accomplished person, not only in Jewish life among the Jewish community, but in the larger Christian world as well. His home became a salon that was visited by Jewish and Christian intellectuals alike. Now, I won't dwell very much on Mendelssohn's life this morning, except to say that he looked around at traditional Jewish life and he found it wanting. He found it backward. He feared that Judaism would be overtaken by the vast progressive movements that were taking place around it, and he didn't want Judaism to disappear. He wanted to save Judaism from itself, so to speak. He wanted to reform the religion and open Jewish life to these vast new possibilities that the brave new world of European enlightenment seemed to be offering. So the question was asked, what aspects of Jewish religious faith and practice, which has served for centuries to preserve a sense of Jewish separateness, deemed essential to Jewish survival, needed to change with the times? And one of the governing principles of Reformed Judaism to this day is that Judaism can be shaped to meet the needs of Jews from generation to generation, and it is a debate that continues very, very vigorously, and particularly in Israel, where the, the Kotel has become a site of contention between Orthodox and Reformed Jews. So the last piece of the puzzle that I want to mention that sets the stage for this modern Jewish encounter with Jesus and Christianity is what became known as the Wissenschaft de Dugentums, quite a mouthful the science of Judaism, a movement arising early 19th century in Germany that promoted, quote, unquote, the study of Judaism by subjecting it to criticism and modern methods of research. This was truly revolutionary in Jewish life. Just as Reformed Judaism sought to acknowledge and respond to the outside world with an altered religious perspective that could serve to, they hoped, could serve to anchor Judaism in the here and now of modern society, the agenda of the Wissenschaft to Judentums was to raise Judaism's stature by meeting the highest standards of European scholarship and thereby win its approval and recognition. It was the genesis of what we would later call Jewish studies, Bible criticism, Talmud, Jewish literature of all periods, religious philosophy, archeology, span and so forth. And it came about only because of the great desire that brilliant Jewish scholars had to sit at the table with their Christian counterparts in the academic world Jews, for the first time in their history, began to employ the tools of Christian historical scholarship to tell their own story. And as we shall see, this had some surprising and complicated effects. Now, I don't want to see hands, but who among us has ever known the piercing pain of unrequited love? <clears throat> Ugh. And I will tell you, 
I go so far as to say that the history of European Jewish life may be characterized as one unrequited love affair after another. And the greatest unrequited love affair that Jews had with Europe was with Germany and German culture and German language. And their first rude awakening came as they sought to sit at the table with these liberal Protestant Bible scholars and were unambiguously rejected. And they were rejected because the Christian scholars could not stand the thought of having Jewish scholars interrogate the New Testament the way Christians had for centuries and century, centuries defined Judaism to the Jews. Suddenly, the gaze was being reversed because as Jewish scholars began to write the history of our people, they came to the first century and they bumped into you-know-who. And the New Testament. And as historians, they felt compelled to address Jesus and Christianity in the context of first century Judaism. And in doing so, they presented this heretofore unheard of challenge to Christian scholarship through the perspective that they brought to the New Testament as Jews. Christian theologians who had long, long taken to themselves the authority to carry on a one-way interrogation of Judaism and to define Second Temple Judaism and the life of Jesus on their own terms were considerably discomfited by the prospect of Jewish scholars turning the tables on them. So the Protestant Bible scholars' liberalism turned out to be only skin deep. You know, yes, they were very reluctant to be drawn to the unwanted conclusion that Jesus was a Jew who practiced Judaism. <coughs> <laughs> and this undermined this long-held, pernicious, false claim that places the life and teaching of Yeshua over and against the Judaism that they say he had come to replace. Yes, Jesus was a Jew, they might reluctantly admit, an embarrassing fact that one would prefer to hush up, but he had nothing whatsoever to do with Judaism, and that's the end of it. But Jewish scholars were determined to prove exactly the opposite. While liberal Protestant scholars sought to flush the Jewishness out of Yeshua, the project of Jewish scholars such as Abraham Geiger, Heinrich Gretz, Joseph Klausner, and others was to present a Jewish Jesus and thereby Judaize Christianity and demonstrate Judaism's complete relevance to Christian faith. Now, all of these, this is very interesting, all of these scholars had a different take about who Jesus was, just, you know, like the, oh, the, the, the men, the, 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 well, the, the, the blind men and the elephant, and, you know, one had the trunk and said the elephant is like a, a snake, the other had the leg, the, the elephant is like a tree, and so on and so forth. And each of them may have been right in a little way, but each of them in their own way were completely wrong. 
They all had a different take. Jesus was a Pharisee. No, he was an Essene. He was a revolutionary. No, he was not a revolutionary. Well, he was a reformer, maybe not, and so forth. But the most important thing they had in common was their conviction that Yeshua is a part of Jewish history, number one, and number two, that he is not the Christian Redeemer. So, all right, where are we with all of this? Jewish scholars can now, it's now kosher for Jewish scholars to gaze at Jesus. So what? The question is, why would they want to? Partly because they had their own agenda. And it was to construct a counter-narrative that places Jesus not only in a seat at the table of Western civilization, but in the seat of honor. Because by reclaiming Jesus for the Jewish world, they could say to Christians, look, the one whom you worship as your redeemer, savior, and Lord was one of us. <laughs> Therefore, we are at the center of your civilization. You can no longer ignore us or look down on us, but while we accept Jesus of Nazareth as an historical person, and as a Jew, we reject him as the Christian Lord. So the cat was out of the bag. Jesus was now a legitimate focus of Jewish scrutiny. Jewish philosophers could now proudly, as Martin Buber could, speak of him as my great brother. Mark Chagall could depict a crucified Christ wearing tefillin the Natalis portraying him not as Christian redeemer, but as the epitome of Jewish martyrdom, and thus say to the Christian world, here is your son of God. He is one of us, and when you persecute, brutalize, and murder us, you are crucifying him all over again. Right? And as... The scholars spread to the Yiddish-speaking world, and that is, is, is a whole other story of how these very effete, elite, Western, Jewish, German scholars who loved the German language and despised the Yiddish language, how could they reach their hillbilly brothers and sisters in Eastern Europe except by holding their nose and writing their lamb in Yiddish and in so doing, creating a body of literature that yields its treasures even to this day. Woof. Huh. And so as the Escala spread to the Yiddish-speaking world, the conversation about Jesus that went on there was much more unfiltered. These Eastern European Jews had no hopes of joining the middle class. They had no hopes of becoming citizens because there were no citizens in the Tsarist Empire. They were only subjects. So they could carry on as an unfiltered conversation among themselves in the Yiddish language about Jesus and Christianity, which they certainly did they were, and had many, many debates. So the guy I started with, the most influential Jewish figure to explore the Jewish connection on a popular level in the Yiddish language was Sholem Ash. 
And because his name is now so nearly forgotten, it is difficult to imagine the immense popularity and international stature that he enjoyed at the height of his career. And at one time, his reach and reputation also extended far into Christian awareness. He was born in the small city of Kutno in Poland in 1880. He arrived in Warsaw in the 1900s. He received encouragement by the great Yiddish writer Yitzhak Lee Peretz. And from there, he immigrated to America and was strongly promoted by Ab Kahan, published of the Jewish Daily Forwards the most influential Yiddish newspaper in the world at that time, where he reached a vast audience of Yiddish readers, both in America and in Europe, at the height of his fame, because the Forwards serialized his work. And for a time, he was the most successful Jewish author to cross over, to make an impact in the wider world in 1933, and again in 1944, he was nominated for the Nobel Prize although he would be denied that honor on both occasions. And in 1936, Osh was mentioned, along with Albert Einstein and Martin Buber and Sigmund Freud, in a list of 10 outstanding Jews published by the New York Times. But beginning in 1939, he would be rejected by many of his Jewish colleagues and readers because of the publication of Demand for Metzeris, or in English translation, the Nazarene, the first of three so-called Christological novels that would gain him either further acclaim among his non-Jewish readership, became wildly popular. It is a thorough re-Jewishing treatment of the life of Messiah uh, in the form of an historical novel such as those that were popular at the time uh, among English reading audiences uh, such as Ben-Hur, the robe and the big fisherman. And um, I mean, there are all, there's no Jesus, it's Yeshua, it's no Ma you know, Mary Magdalene, it's Miriam Magdal, Bethlehem, all of it, all of it is completely re-Jewished. And he found a good translator. He wrote it in Yiddish, he found a very good translator. It hit the bestseller list in the New York Times and stayed there in uh, 1939 and stayed there for many weeks. And English-reading audiences loved him. The Christian audiences ate him up. But Ab Kahan of the Forwards, the man who had been Ash's champion for 30 years, carried out a two-year character assassination against him on the pages of his newspaper and pressured other writers who worked for him to smear Ash's reputation with wild accusations. He was an agent of the Vatican, whose aim was to corrupt Jewish readers, especially the young, and so on and so forth. So what provoked this violent response among his Jewish critics? The most popular reason seemed to be uh, the poor timing of the uh, novel's publication. 1939 was not a great year to publish a uh, treatment of the life of Yeshua that was so sympathetic. Um, he made public statements that led many to believe that he had, in fact, become a believer in the gospel. Um, he had a temperamental personality himself, but I, I think it goes more deeply beyond that, and I'm going to tell you why. It has to do with what I mentioned earlier, the blurring of the borders between Jew and Christian. 
because the objection of the Jewish critics to the Nazarene was not primarily Asha's depiction of Yeshua. This was, I mean, as I hope we've seen already, this was nothing new to Jewish life. What made Ash a particularly threatening figure in the eyes of his critics was their perception that he somehow wanted to erase the border between Jew and Christian. Toward the end of the Nazarene, Ash stresses this perception of the essential unity of the Messianists. That's what he called Jewish Christians and those who, Jews who remained outside the fold. He writes, the only difference between us was that their belief in the, that the Messiah had already been once on earth and was due to return, and we said this could not be, that the Messiah could not have been on earth and mankind remained unredeemed from evil but full of wickedness. It's the only difference. Now, this is not going to make anybody happy. Certainly not the Jews who want to disown Jewish believers in Yeshua, and certainly not Christians, believers for whom belief or non-belief in Jesus is the single defining fact of human destiny. They believe that if Yeshua is not the Messiah of the Jews, he isn't anybody's Messiah. All right, I don't want to overburden our time, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> So, despite the common ground he may have shared with Jewish writer, artists, writers, artists, and academics who've sought to engage with these subjects, his treatment of Yeshua and Christianity was distinguished by, from them in one important respect, and it is that the Jewish reclamation of Jesus has always involved Jews asserting his Jewishness while rejecting the Christian Jesus of Western culture. But by blurring these borders that others insisted upon, Ash failed to keep a reclaimed Jesus who is not Messiah safely in Jewish territory. That is the distinction that set him apart from the others. By writing a Jewish Yeshua who is understood by at least some of his fellow Jews to be Messiah, Ash was perceived as a threat by the Jews who wanted Jesus as a Jew, but not Messiah, and by Christians who wanted a Messiah who was not a Jew. Isn't that strange? This was his sin and his transgression. And when Kirsten and I were walking down Broadway, 12 years ago probably, and saw an outdoor bookstall with a tiny little volume that both pairs of eyes fastened on at once and pulled out one destiny, an epistle to the Christians, and I began to read it. My imagination caught fire. He writes, the preservation of Israel and the Nazarene are one phenomenon. The two are one. And notwithstanding the heritage of blood and fire which passionate enmity has brought between them, they are two parts of a single whole, two poles of the world which are always drawn to each other, and no deliverance, no peace, and no salvation can come until the two halves are joined together and become one part of God. So as I said, 
people like borders and fences, and I mentioned earlier that there is always a border patrol on both sides, and Jewish believers in Yeshua and Christians who join with them are transgressive figures that make everyone else disoriented and nervous. That's a lot of what goes on. So in our five minutes of remaining time, I want to explore the question we started out with. So what? What does it all mean? What does the formation of modern Jewish identity have to do with Jewish believers today, and why does it matter? So how have we looked, has what we look for shaped the outlook of Jewish people we meet and may still be seeking? How can we glean insights to give us knowledge of how to approach them? And these points may be of some importance to non-Jewish believers as well to help them understand your Jewish brothers and sisters a bit better perhaps and perhaps help you approach your not yet believing Jewish friends with a little more wisdom. So I'll begin with the question. Does being Jewish matter now in the first place? Now that I'm a believer in Messiah, why does it matter? Does it matter? If so, why? And what kind of a Jew do I want to be or should I be now that I am Messiah's disciple? And when I first came to faith in 1975, I had fellowship with a small group in New York City, and there was a Jewish brother there who had been a believer for some years, and he told me that he felt that being Jewish was something that he had left behind in his former life as an unbeliever. It was of the flesh, as he put it. And now that we were living in the spirit, being Jewish was unimportant. And my inner response to that was, no way. You may be an older brother in the Lord, but you are badly mistaken here. Being a Jewish believer does matter. And I suspect if you are Jewish, you may feel as I do. But even as new creatures in Messiah, Jewish identity remains an essential part of who we are. And I'm here to tell you today that it is important that we become as secure in that identity as possible. And that the power of our witness and testimony is grounded, especially to other Jews, in the depth of our own self-understanding as Jewish men and women. This cannot be faked. It must be truthful. Without this authenticity, we are severely handicapped in our efforts to remove the moat from our Jewish neighbor's eye so long as the log of confusion is clouding our own vision. So why does our modern Jewish history matter? Partly because it makes us aware of those who came before us. What they experienced, how it made them what they were, because whether we want to admit it or not, it is part of what makes us who we are, and the more we understand that, the better we understand ourselves. Amen. Thank you. And also, I think we owe it to them not to forget them. That's why I learned Yiddish, although I realize that may not be for everyone, that why even at my advanced age I returned to school. It was to revisit the question, what kind of a Jew am I? 
a question that could never even been thought of before the developments we've been speaking of today. There was no such thing as an Orthodox Jew before there was a Reformed Jew, because every Jew was a traditional Jew of one kind or another. So as a Jewish believer or one who feels joined to Jewish believers, you have a double role. The first is to be a good witness to the gospel to anyone you meet. But for Jewish speakers, you have a special role. It is to show that it is possible to be a follower of Yeshua and to live as a Jew. But to come across as authentic, as truthful, you yourself have to be clear about what your Jewish identity is. What kind of a Jew are you? How is your pintelayit, the Jewish spark of yours, coming alive in Messiah? And that is a question you have to answer for yourself. Because the good news is, at least in my view, there are so many ways to live out Jewish identity. This is what we owe to the Enlightenment. This is what we owe to the Haskalah and all the rest of it, because it has given birth to such a wide variety of Jewish expression that we can observe. It's given us a Jewish Yeshua that Jew and non-Jew can celebrate together. It set the stage for a new kind of Jewish evangelism that affirms Jewish identity, without which there would be no groups such as Chosen People Ministries and others. And what I have found is that Jews who are spiritually opened are attracted to respond to other Jews who demonstrate a commitment and learn about a commitment to learn about and to honor not just the Jewish religion, which so many really know nothing about and, if the truth be told, couldn't care less about, but to honor Jewish history and Jewish culture, and that through those interests, spiritual matters may be approached indirectly. There was a very famous bank robber in America by the way of name of Willie Sutton, and someone once asked him, why do you rob banks? And he answered, because that's where the money is. <laughs> so we must go where the money is. We must go where Jewish people are and meet them in a way where we can demonstrate the authenticity of our Jewish identity as we have, in a sense, received it by being comfortable in our own skins by asking the hard question, what kind of a Jew do I want to be? But the great thing is this, and with this I will close. Whatever you are, Jewish believer, or a Christian who has a precious heritage of your own, remember this. Whatever heritage it is, however much you treasure it, however precious it is, it is important only because there is something, or more precisely someone, who is more important still. That's all, and thank you.